Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. It's become a bit of a cliche in the last two years to say that the Conservative Party is facing its gravest crisis since the middle of the 19th century, when the repeal of the Corn Laws split the party in two and kept it out of power for more or less a generation. So we thought we would ask, what were the Corn Laws? What actually happened back then? And are there lessons for today? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB, where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. I'm delighted that Helen Thompson and I are joined today by Boyd Hilton, preeminent historian of this period, author of the classic book, A Mad, Bad and Dangerous People, question mark, there's a question mark in the title, England, 1783 to 1846, and 1846 is our key date for this, that's the year of the split. What we're going to try and do is just sketch out how politics worked back then, because Boyd is a real historian, he may be reluctant to do some of the comparisons with today that me and Helen are going to go for. So we'll have to see how that works. We may shoehorn them in. But before we do that, I think we need to talk about what politics was like in the 1840s. This is the period after the first Reform Act. So we have a somewhat more democratic system. The franchise has been expanded from about 400,000 people to about 650,000. I think more importantly, elections are more genuinely competitive by this point and contested, which they weren't always before. And it's a two-party system. The two parties are the party that we still call the Conservative Party and the Whigs. So just to start with, how disciplined were those two parties? How independent were MPs in the 1840s? If you wanted to vote with your conscience, if you felt you couldn't stomach the policy of the government, ostensibly of your government, did MPs feel that they could uh, do what they liked? MPs did feel that, yes. The paradox of the period is that in the course of the 30s, the electorate seems to have become increasingly polarised, particularly in the boroughs. So that in 1841, there's an election in the amount of split voting, where a voter gives one vote to the, we'll call them the Liberal Party, and the other vote to the Conservative Party. The amount of split voting has come down to a very, very historically low level at about 8%. It rises again in 1847 and it's high up in the 18%, 19% until it comes down again in 1868. So 1841 stands out as a time when the constituents seem to know where they are. It may partly be due to the Municipal Corporation Act of 1835, which meant there were annual elections fought on party lines every year. That might have something to do with it. There might be other reasons. But anyway, that is the constituency party. But the MPs were still stuck in a mindset which said that they were free to decide which party to support. Now, of course, many were committed on one way or the other. Some were a sort of fringe Tories or fringe Whigs liberals. Some were genuinely independent. The 1841 election is fascinating because it's the first time that a majority government is thrown out by the electorate since 1708. It never happened in the 18th century. You could say in 1830 
an election led to the fall of the old Tories, Wellington's government, but there was so much going on between the election in July and the throwing out in November that I don't think it's anything like a clear cut. So if one was to characterise it then as an increasingly divided electorate on party lines, but a party system that was still operating in its own mind according to principles that gave more freedom to the MPs, there was still a sense, so I'm going to read you a bit from your book that's Gladstone from about 10 years after the the mid-1840s crisis, that people believed that the way that the political system was meant to work was that the two parties faced each other across the commons and were divided in, you know, there was this binary division. So this is Gladstone writing 10 years after the repeal of the Corn Laws, where he says, Ah, those were times indeed. What close running, what cheering, what whipping in. No loose fish, no absentees. If a man broke his leg before a great division, it was a kind of petty treason. And then he says, if a man detested one half of the House of Commons, at least he loved the other. This kind of nostalgia for party loyalty. You hear that today, right? We see a politics which is divided, where parties seem to be fracturing, and people are nostalgic for the time where you knew where you stood. It was always an illusion, right? It's a fantasy. A total fantasy, yes. The constituencies were divided briefly around about the late 30s, early 40s, but both parties were coalitions. My way of putting it is to say that there are two great dividing lines in politics in the 20s, 30s and 40s. I mean, one is how do you stop revolution? That's the great, great fear. The division is broadly whether you go into heavy repressive mode, batten down the hatches, or whether you make concessions or reforms on civil rights, franchise, that sort of thing. And it's a spectrum, and a lot of people are somewhere in the middle. But the division between the two parties, I'll call them the Liberal and Conservative parties, is somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. That's fine. The trouble is that there's another division. They're facing social upheaval. This is what we call the Industrial Revolution, demographic and economic explosion, enormous roller coaster capitalism, great riches, great poverty, side by side, and terrible social conditions, living conditions in the cities, or towns, I should say. And essentially, I think there are two broad approaches, which are, I think, still relevant today, big state and little state, if you like. I mean, do you try to control this anonymous and extraordinary mobile society with controls, with mercantilism, if you like, protection, monetary management? Or do you say, no, the only way is for free markets, for for people to stand on their own feet, for minimal welfare? I suppose that is the key issue in the 1820s and 30s. Do you have a sort of the old late 18th century generous system of poor relief that will protect people against high prices or do you say no the only way of staying alive is in the workhouse and if you're outside the workhouse you should get well no relief in theory of course the theory never quite applied in practice so there is this sort of stand on your own feet mechanistic free market approach and then there's a very very paternalistic controlling approach uh, more generous if you like but of course also more disciplinary and it seems to me that is to spectrum. People might hold one view strongly or weakly, but there's no spectrum, you're one or the other. And because politics remain divided on the political spectrum, both parties remain split and divided on the what I call the socioeconomic spectrum. In 1827, it looked as though there might be a coalition of economic liberals. Economic liberalism, obviously, the opposite of political liberalism. Because on the political spectrum, you're liberal, you want to be generous to the poor. Economic liberalism, obviously, harsh. 
And it did look as though Canning and the Liberal Tories might form a coalition government in 1827, taking in economically liberal Whigs, but then he died. But in 1830, his key henchmen joined the Liberals inside the Whig government. We'd notice that more as historians if Hussison didn't die just in time, because he would have done the same. So we're looking at people like Palmerston, big people, Palmerston, Ripon and Grant and so forth. Now, Peel should have gone in logical terms, but he stays with the Tories. From then on, he's really in the wrong place, I think. He has to fight the general election of 1841, pretending he is not an economic liberal, when he knows that he is. Peel... I think the figure is in 33, 40 votes with the Liberals in the Whig government on 14 out of 24 divisions. Isn't that, the, isn't that the crunch, though, then, of what comes in is 1846? Yes. You have this election in 1841 that for once has produced this majority. At the same time, it seems to have been fought on not exclusively a single issue, but protection has played a very, 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 very big part in the election. You have a prime minister who doesn't actually believe in the policy that has won the election. And then we get to 1846 and we're working out that political problem as opposed to it necessarily being about what happened in terms of the potato famine and Ireland or the geopolitical position of the United Kingdom and in the world that fundamentally it's a crisis in some sense of the legitimacy of the party system mm-hmm. and that is why Disraeli does have a point mm-hmm. in the in the arguments that he makes uh, against Peel during those debates in 1846. I think before we get into that we probably just need to do one quick background what were the Corn Laws and how the divisions that you've just described in the end come to a head on this central issue? So it's the issue of protection, it's the issue, and corn here means grain, it means the staple, the cost of bread essentially. Particularly wheat, because that's what we're really talking about, but English people eat wheat. And well, you go back to the Middle Ages, of course, and um, sometimes people talk about the, the 19th century Corn Laws as though they were new in the 19th century. There had always been bounties on exports and and duties on imports, trying to get the right amount of food for the population. Of course, as population explodes, at the end of the 18th century, this becomes more of a problem. There's no question of exporting food by the 19th century, so the Corn Laws become a question of controlling imports. And the big Corn Law of 1815 broke ranks with the past by having an actual blanket prohibition on imports until the price reached a certain level. Well, that didn't work for technical reasons. I won't go into all why, but it was too crude. So by eight, in 1828, they go back to a sliding scale system that the duty will rise as the price will fall. And the effect is to keep the prices artificially high. Yes. And the great champions of this are the, the landowning Aristocrats, but yes. the old Tories. You're quite right, but I would put a word in for the work by Anna Gambles, who pointed out that it's easy to read it just as protectionist selfishness and worries about their rent rolls. And of course, that is there. Nobody would deny that. Perhaps it's the most important thing. But there was this sort of anti-economic liberalism, this sense of what we need is a controlled society which would have monetary management, not the gold standard, but Bank of England and Treasury deciding the level of the currency. We would have colonial preference rather than the sort of globalistic free market vision that seems to be moving in in the 40s. We would have fiscal policies to nudge certain types of behaviour. We'd expect bankers not to react to the exchanges as your 
political economists wanted, but actually to make discretionary judgments as to whether citizens wanted to borrow money, well, credit worthy or not. That's it's a more managerial, controlling, mercantilist sort of approach. So it wasn't just being selfish, and it wasn't just being party loyalty. It was partly there was a, a theory behind it. Is it possible to say that along with the divisions that you described, there's another one which has some crossovers with today? So I hesitate to use this phrase, but there's a kind of centre in politics at this period, which is this more administrative, rules-oriented. As you say, you kind of stand and fall on your own two feet, and then there are a whole series of systems in place to regulate. And then on both fringes, or as it were, towards the edges of politics, whether it's ultra-Tory or radical, there's a much stronger preference for something that's more discretionary, that gives more autonomy to individuals with power to act in the way that they see best, whether it's to be more charitable on the ultra-Tory side or to be more redistributive on the radical side. And that they do. Ultra-Tories and radicals do form alliances in this period on some questions, pushing back against that kind of political economy. You see something similar in contemporary politics. I mean, on something like the euro, there is a sort of high Tory and radical alliance against what they see as this sort of systematic, impersonal, heartless politics. They want to use their discretion for completely different ends, but what they want is the discretion of power. There is a certain kind of technocrat in Peel. He wants to be an administrator and he wants to transcend, I think, the need for having parties in some sense, which goes back to Boyd's point about him being in the wrong party. And there's a bit when Disraeli's complaining about him, which he does bitterly in his novels. In the in the last one, he wrote something like, oh, Peel wants to basically take up the projects he finds from the, I think he uses the phrase, the pigeonholes of the Treasury, as if the Treasury officials all are going to decide what's important, and then he's going to implement them because he's the, the great administrator. And I, I think if you say then, what is the critique that is being made of appeal from within the Conservative Party, it is that he's not political in some sense. And I think that that does have some echoes of where we are with the European Union debates. There's certainly a Tory radical alliance on issues like poor law and trying to prevent exploitation in factory hours, that sort of thing. And it's noticeable that Disraeli, eventually, of course, a Tory, but he does stand as a radical earlier in his career. The one thing he never is is a Liberal or a Whig. I don't think radicals of that period are redistributory. They're not thinking in economic terms. It's more political terms. But yes, there is a Tory radical alliance. On Peel as a technocrat, yes, absolutely. Now, my hero is Huskisson. I think he stands head and shoulders as a sort of thinking politician. Uh, he's a Rory Stewart, if you like. Um, Although, let's hope Rory doesn't meet the same end. So, for people who don't know, Huskisson well, was the guy. Rory Stewart himself as Disraeli. So, Huskisson was the man who was uh, killed by Stevenson's rocket. That's just, right. Just as a bit of background. I, 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 and that's a crucial moment, actually. But never, never mind. Huskisson teaches Peel. If Peel is a free trader from way back before 1841, just keeping quiet about it. It is for Huskisonian reasons. Everything Peel writes is Huskisonian. And of course it is, as uh, Helen says, it's technocratic. Food supply is the crucial thing for him. Assuming population goes on growing and every 10 years we have a census, and that is the case, then he's aware that you have to get food from further and further afield. Even Europe won't do it. And that means that the direction of the Corn Wars is going to be downwards, and the need to attract food from further afield. Very important for him is the gold standard. He took Britain back to the gold standard. Extraordinarily controversial by 1830, because it had caused a great deal of distress to all those who had debts, mortgages, and so forth. Now, 
he sees, as Huskisson did, a very close connection between free trade in corn and the gold standard. Because if we need food because of shortages at home, and that will always happen three years out of six maybe, you've got to import it. You can't delay importing it. On the other hand, if you then have suddenly to import corn, I mean, it goes up, I think, from one million pounds worth of imports in 39 to something like 6 million and 40. Where do you suddenly find the extra 5 million? Well, cash. It has You have to pay in specie. So you're going to get an internal drain of specie at a time when the economy is distressed anyway and prices are high and so forth. So he felt that unless you could get a, a relatively stable trade in corn, then you're always going to damage the currency. And in 1844, key point, Bank Charter Act, as part of his deflationary programme, trying to cut down on speculation, he restricts the amount of currency, paper currency, that is allowed to circulate in the country to the amount of gold deposits in the Bank of England, with just a 14 million fiduciary leeway above that. Well, 14 million is absolutely nothing, I mean, nowhere in terms of the size of the economy. So in other words, it, it is intentionally very, very deflationary, but it means that it's even more necessary not to have huge fluctuations in the corn trade. So I think this is all very technocratic. You could add in his worry about whether the poor people can afford food and certainly his worry about the export industries where there's a lot of employment now dependent on export. But I think the two key things, the ones that go back furthest to food supply and, and monetary stability. Is it possible to say that this is the kind of, because it's, it's going to lead to this huge political split, this is the kind of technocrat who believes that he's facing up to certain things that are coming anyway, and his party is in denial about them. That, as it were, there isn't that much choice here. There isn't that much political choice. This is coming, and it's partly a question of timing. When do we do it, and who does it? And we'll come on to that in a second, because there's also this question about who's left carrying the can when it happens. But is he trying to say to his party, we don't have a choice over this, that this at some point this is going to happen, we have to move from a protectionist, broadly speaking, to a free trade arrangement backed by the gold standard. When we do it is the question, not if. But isn't there a case for saying one of his problems is he's not actually interested in trying to persuade the party that actually he thinks that it can be done without really any engagement with the problem that that causes for the Conservative Party? In part, I think, because he does have to have sort of, in some sense, live in denial about what happened in 1841. What happened being the election? What happened being the election? And the Got fact elected that, on a different that he, Well, that the party, whatever you, however you want to conceive it, there's a certain level of false pretenses. And as I understand it, I mean, there are certain of members of the Conservative Party who are on his side but want to stand in by-elections in order to try and provide some legitimacy for this turn. And he's deeply opposed to it. He's not willing to dissolve Parliament and hold a general election in order to try to find some democratic, if you like, or electoral legitimacy for what he's doing. And there was a bit, I think, of a, regardless of the politics, regardless of any attempt to persuade his party or making a broader argument about electoral um, politics, he's just determined that this is what he's going to do. So he resigns before he does it because he thinks he can't do it. And then an attempt is made to form a, yeah. a liberal Whig government under Russell, which also fails, leading to the famous phrase that the poison chalice mm. was handed back to Peel. So again, you'll have to forgive me, I was thinking of contemporary parallels. You know, say which is possible that what happened when May failed to achieve a Brexit arrangement was that Corbyn was invited to form a government and he failed to form a government and it passed back to May 
under which circumstances she might think, as Peel seemed to think, well, in that case, I can just do it because... I don't know if that's exactly what he thought, but it seemed to give him a certain sense that if it's come back to me and we've been around the houses with this, it's now time just to do it. I can see you're going to be doubtful about this analogy, but it's not—it's the same system. I mean, no, it, not, it could happen. I'm not so much doubtful. I'm just thinking there's something being left out. Yeah. And there may be a parallel, a sort of reverse parallel with uh, today. By the late 30s, there was a growing sense that something had to be done about the Cornwalls. The Whig liberals in power didn't want to do it. What people often forget is that in 1832 they had strengthened the role of the landed interest in the political system. They doubled the number of English county seats. And they didn't dare, I think, go helter-skelter for free trade, even though many of their radicals and their more liberal brethren wanted them to do. Peel didn't want to go for it. He knew that it was going to have to come, but he couldn't declare his hand until after the election. Otherwise, he'd never have been elected in 1841. He would have split his party in the late 30s instead of when he did do. So he has to keep quiet. So nothing is happening. And, and then, of course, in 38, you move into the worst depression of the century, I mean, the real terrible industrial depression. So the Corn Laws become centre stage, but not because of the politicians, because of the anti-Corn Law League, and Cobden particularly, and so on. Now, I think you often get this in politics. When suddenly something becomes the issue, it's not what you say, it's not what you've done, it's the image that people have of you. And as soon as the Corn Laws became centre stage, it was assumed that the Tories were the protectionists, even though they had begun to move in a free trade area with their Liberal Tories in the 20s, and it was assumed that the Whig Liberals were the free traders, even though they had done nothing on the free trade. I think politically that pushes the Whigs towards free trade. They have to respond to the Corn Law League and they go into the election of 1841 on a freer trade platform. There might also be other reasons for their switching to free trade, which were more ideological within the party. I think Russell in particular has a real conversion. It's not just appealing to political constituency. But the two things go together. So Peel's elected as a protectionist, as, as we've already said, but by this time he's facing a increasingly sort of you know, the Economist newspaper and huge propaganda taking over in, in liberal newspapers, economically liberal newspapers. Free trade's the thing, free trade's the thing. And of course it's an entirely different free trade from the one he was worried about. He's operating in a Malthusian mindset. He's quite explicit. He does not believe that free trade will ease e economic distress or cause economic growth. It will create a more just society in which the hardworking and virtuous will flourish and the lazy will collapse. And he talks about God's system of social retribution. It will be a stable society. We shan't get too rich. Then we won't fall too much. It will be a much more stable society. But he has no truck with Cobden's free trade as a panacea, economic growth, international division of labour, creation of wealth, trickle-down, help all economies, all countries, bring peace, social harmony. I mean, that is broadly the optimistic vision that Cobden is operating. Peel has no truck with that at all. But he uses it in a way, to get his free trade through. And famously, when in 1846, after the decision has been made in the Commons, he says, the person you should be thanking, or attacking, I suppose, the person you should be thanking is over there, and points to Cobden. And everybody is very puzzled because they know he doesn't like Cobden at that stage, and he hates the anti-Corn Law League. There's a slight Brexit overtone that Cobden presents free trade as the people's policy. 
Appeal hates that, and he wanted to do it anyway for other reasons. But, of course, I'm pretty sure that his reason for saying, well, it's Cobden who's persuaded me, it's Cobden who's created this situation where there's no other course possible, is in order to get him off the hook of the accusation that he deliberately deceived the electorate in 1841. If he can say he's changed his mind, he's off that hook. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You say in your book that the Anti-Cornell League is perhaps the most successful single-issue movement of its kind in this period, or maybe even any period in, in British politics. Perhaps the only other one that comes to mind is UKIP, in the sense that there has been recently a very, very successful single-issue movement, which then collapses as soon as the issue has been achieved, but it then allows the quote-unquote mainstream politicians to dance around the question of how public opinion and that man, Farage, or whoever it is, Mm. has boxed them into positions that they might not otherwise be comfortable with, but it also gives them a kind of way out, which is that they're responding. I mean, this is an era, we'll maybe come on to chartism in a second, but this is an era where there's also this upsurge of a new kind of public opinion and pressure on these politicians who might think that they should vote with their conscience or their principles or their independence. And they are subject to new kinds of pressure. And there is some, I think, comparison with now. Yes, and certainly the Anti-Cornwall League collapsed in its moment of triumph. Uh, uh, As did you. I mean, the Brexit party. We now have... So the analogy breaks down, but... But Chartism didn't collapse. I mean, that's why it's a more complicated um, relationship, I think, than than this example. Though I think you could try and see some echo between... There were certain elements of, of Chartism, I think, that could fit with a kind of role that Farage is trying to play for himself in terms of like mobilising discontent about what's going on at Westminster and you know, in some sense the initial impetus for Chartism comes as what's seen as a betrayal of 1832 that the Reform Act actually is basically for middle class voters it actually deprives some working class people of the vote and that betrayal narrative gives a lot I think of energy to Chartism. Because you could almost say in, in the case that we're talking about here you've got these two movements the Anti-Corn Law League and you've got Chartism applying pressure in different ways in the contemporary instance, those two forms of pressure come together. After all, the forerunner of UKIP was the referendum party. So if Chartism is demanding more direct popular input into politics and the Anti-Cornwall League is demanding a change on a central political economic question of the time, the referendum party turning into UKIP, turning into the Brexit party, are both. I mean, they are both demanding a referendum, a change to the way we do politics, and they are taking a position on the central issue of our time. It's different. In a way, the challenge is different because it's this single movement doing both. And we are subject to the same two challenges, demand for more direct input and a demand for a change of the central economic policy. Yeah, and I think as well there is something in the tension between the claims of you know, like Parliament and the claims of popular opinion, popular sovereignty and parliamentary sovereignty, if we want to turn it into those terms. Because, as Boyd said, it's, it's not that Peel was very happy about being responsive to what he saw as this extra-parliamentary opinion that was manifested in the anti-corn league and at the same time you know Disraeli wants to position the importance of parliament and the promises made between 
well, parties in Parliament and the voters that they're appealing to is a central part of the critique that he wants to make of what Peel's um, done. So it is a constitutional question, I think, as well as anything else. And it's a constitutional question that's playing out at the same time as there is this unresolved tension between the demands of a more popular democracy manifested in, um, in Chartism and the claim of parliamentary sovereignty. How serious was the charge against Peel that he had betrayed a commitment that he had made to the voters? Was that a big part of the trouble that he was in or was that just rhetoric? And did people really believe that you can't go to the country on one platform and then do something else? I think the answer is yes, but it was put in slightly 21st century terms or, or 20th century terms. <laughs> that's, that's my job here. <laughs> I mean, I think the people who felt betrayed were the MPs and the supporters in the constituencies, but I mean, not necessarily, they don't think in terms of voters, I don't think. I don't think anybody in politics took the charges constitutional demands all that seriously. Parliamentary reform goes completely off the table so long as the charges are asking for it. When you get into the 1850s and Chartism is gone and dead, immediately radicals in Parliament and others start talking about parliamentary reform. And just remind, they were demanding not just an extended franchise, but a secret ballot, more yes. regular parliaments, yes. fixed-term yes. parliaments, some of which we now have, some of which we don't. Actually, all of which we but No, there's one of them we don't. We don't have annual parliaments, no. which I think but we, is yeah, but, yeah. That's what the Chartists were demanding, yes. And so yeah. while they were demanding it, it was... It was it, it, the it, political it, class, for want of a better phrase, joined ranks against uh, it. Yes. The understanding is Britain is in an economic mess, there's national bankruptcy, you know, everything could collapse. You have one optimistic voice, which is Cobden's or anti-Cornwall League, saying we can solve this. A little bit by Adam Fox, if you like. Liam Fox, I'm sorry. This sort of optimism that Singapore, England can, you know, rule the waves, as it were, or rule the trade routes. You have got Peel, whose approach to uh, free trade and free markets is very much let's stop building too fast that's his own words let's try and keep things stable and durable and you've got uh, charters who again insofar as they have a serious economic policy is regressive it's back to the land it's three acres and a cow it's stability community it's not optimistic so you have two pessimistic versions and one optimistic version. Now, Cobden won out. There's no question that in the 50s that free trade is taken up with enormous enthusiasm and euphoria even. It becomes, as somebody said, it becomes the secular religion of the whole of the third quarter of the century. And I think optimism has something to do with it, but not simply because it was optimism, because it hit its moment. Because it matched the boom, apart from anything else. Well, so. no, no, I don't think it was the boom. I think it preceded the boom. By 1860s, you could say there's the boom, and therefore free trade has an economic validation. But you couldn't... People embraced it before that. Uh, yes, it, it happens, I think, in 1849, 50, 51, 52. I mean, in 1847, there's another great crash, which is blamed on Bank Charter Act and the Corn Laws. And a lot of people think, sort of neutral people think, well... You could bring the corn laws back, it wouldn't be difficult. And many people think that will happen, and certainly a lot of rural Tories are trying to make it happen. By 1852, the possibility of bringing the corn laws back is, as Broom says, I mean, the protections are as dead as dinosaurs. There's something happens, explodes, tremendous optimism, and it's the Cobdenite version of free trade that seizes everybody. People are probably looking for an optimistic solution. They've been through 50 years of worrying about revolution, the mad, bad, dangerous people. It comes to a head in 1848. 
But in 1848, I would put it as crudely as this, Chartism is killed, basically by the action of the state, who, following the June days in France, know that they can go in very heavy and hard and they'll be able to carry all the elite with them. So they've been holding off in in how to deal with Chartism because they know that the elite is divided over corn and things, so they're not sure they could carry everybody with them. But when you get the terrible bloodshed on the third week of June 1848 in Paris, everybody knows that you've got to smash the Chartism. So hundreds are arrested and deported. Last year you can deport to Australia and so on. Chartism dies. The myth, of course, becomes that Chartism just faded and fizzled. People talk about Kennington Common, but after the Kennington Common meeting where Chartism is supposed to have fizzled in inanition, in fact, there were lots of uh, very serious Chartist risings, both in London and in Lancashire, Yorkshire, and so forth. So it's heavy-handed repression, but... The success of this repression creates, I think, such um, glee, if you like. Well, it's, it's not so much the fact that things get better, it is that in Europe, in 1848, every capital city has a revolution. I, the parallels, I, I'm, I, I'm so <laughs> tempted, I'm not even going to do it. I'm going to, as they say, leave it to our listeners to join the dots <laughs> with now <laughs> and I mean, what might happen. <laughs> For the Conservative Party, there is an interesting question that comes out of this because in the end, obviously, the party does go back to a protectionist tendency. So although that the modern Conservative Party that comes out of this is Disraeli's party and it's not Peel's party yet, Disraeli, he doesn't take the party back to a protectionist position himself. You know, when Disraeli finally does become prime minister, he, he presides over free trade. But there will then become a counter-reaction within the Conservative Party by the time we get to the beginning of the 20th century. And indeed, in the end, Conservatives will divide themselves several times over again over the trade question. So it is, I think, a not a contained political moment, but it does leave unresolved questions. And one of the reasons why I think perhaps it does is because it is, although there isn't really any geopolitical, I think, or not any really substantial geopolitical debate at that, point in 1846 it does rely on a geopolitical premise and that is it relies on British naval supremacy because it relies on the fact that actually you're not going to be put in a position where the food isn't going to be able to come in from the rest of the world that you need the British Navy and once Britain's position in the world stops being as dominant as it is in 1851 then you're going to get the return of the question of like well actually is free trade the appropriate position and that is particularly vexed within the Conservative Party. Again I'm probably I'm really nervous now I'm going to get all this wrong. Is it fair to say that there's a strand therefore of the Conservative Party that is unreconciled to the optimism that believes it's a kind of sham that in the end this is just storing up trouble for the future? There must always be in politics if if there are two strands of pessimism and one strand of optimism and optimism wins it's not like the pessimists are all going to go oh yeah you were right optimism is correct. And this split, this fundamental split in party politics, presumably there's a significant group of people who still think of themselves as the true Conservative Party who are unreconciled to this. No, oddly, I don't think that is the case, although it would seem to be... Well, no, it Another would, one I've got wrong. It would seem to be the logical case. But then that does rely on my view that in so many areas, and I could bring religion in here, though I won't, there is a very, very rapid shift of view around about 80, the early 50s. This is the decisive shift in the century. In my view, it's a decisive shift in the century. Remember the Great Exhibition, which was conceived in the mid-40s by Peel, Albert and others, in a very gloomy 
sense, that British industry might be temporarily successful, but there was no design skills, it was all machine and it was shoddy. Let's have a great exhibition, get Indians over to show us how to do real cottons, and French silks and so on. By the time, of course, it actually takes place, it is represented as a great triumph of not only British industry, but British society, because this is a society where working people from the north can come down on the trains in their Sunday best and mingle with the upper classes without any soldiers by, standing by. Uh, everywhere else in Europe is in a police state, more or less, by this time. So you get this enormous sense which Dickens marks of the great British constitution and how the people love the Queen and so forth. Disraeli's great achievement is to declare for free trade on behalf of the Conservative Party while it is still in its very early blowing stages. I think if they hung out and tried to come round, say, in the 60s, it would have been too late for them. So the great what-if, in my view, of 19th century politics, 1846 was not a crisis. It delivered a good policy without um, you know, the sort of crisis we're in now at all. It's a crisis for the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party ought to have just gradually disappeared. The serious Conservatives would have been spokesmen for the agricultural interest in the Liberal Party, should we say. But the Conservatives would have disappeared. So instead of getting what you get throughout the third quarter of the century, a huge Liberal coalition where the radicals on the left can't see the Whigs on the right, they're so divided, but kept alive by the continuing existence of the Conservatives as the polar opposite, and it means that all Gladstone's four ministers essentially are hobbled by internal division so on. I think what you would have had if Conservatives had behaved themselves and gone away, you would have had a division somewhere, probably along big state, little state lines, within the Liberal Party. You would then have had a radical party emerge that was not in hock to the trade unions, because the trade unions hadn't got going until the end of the century and so forth. We would have had a genuinely radical, probably more Fabian and interventionist party. Whereas, of course, when the Labour Party comes along, it's not interventionist, it's not really redistributory. Uh, well, it may be redistributory, I'm sorry, I'm wrong about that, but it's not, it, it's not going after power, it's not going after the House of Lords or Oxbridge or public schools, it's trying to redistribute wealth within, broadly, an existing system. But an older radical party with the new Gladstone Liberal elements would have gone for power. So we started with this cliché that the Jacob Rees-Mogg line, which is that May risks making the great mistake that Peel make and splitting the party and keeping the party out of power for a generation and so. But on your account, actually the way this could have gone would have killed the Conservative Party altogether. And we should see this as the period of yes. the miracle of the yes. Conservative Party, that it's still the same party, it's still alive today. And to some extent, give the Israeli the credit. Not that he had ideas or anything, but he had gusto. He kept it to show on the road. I think they had. A, I think there's more to Disraeli than just thinking he had gusto. I mean, I think the thing, and it goes back, I think, to something which he says actually in, in one of his speeches on his big speech, I think, on the Corn Laws, saying that the the party of the people and the party of England, and that's what Disraeli succeeds in in keeping the Conservative Party, I think, in the game because as the party of England, part as the party of England, and and that is why it's not a coincidence then that it's the ability to tie an English question as a critique of home rule for Ireland to empire that is so central to the person who then really does reinvent the Conservative Party as the dominant party in British politics who's Lord Salisbury. The ability of Disraeli to keep the Conservatives as a protector of English interests in some sense in the Union I think comes into its own once you get Gladstone runs into his Irish problems and we get into Lord Salisbury. And we do also need to say because we're talking about specifically this 
moment in the 1840s, the other dominant background event is the Irish famine, which we haven't touched on. So can we just, before we just get onto that wider thing briefly of the Irish question in politics more broadly, how did the, the famine itself impact on the Corn Laws? Well, you say it's not the crisis, but the Corn Laws moment, the moment of repeal. Well, we ought to be careful. Nobody actually dies in 1845. The first deaths from famine are after Peel has left office. Is that important? I do think there was, as we've said already, a certain sort of etatist side to Peel who, in an emergency, if it really got as bad as it did in 46, 47, might have shown more gumption than the Whig liberals in actually doing something, as it were, requisitioning food, I mean, something that sort of thing we might have to do in an emergency with no deal or something. There would have been some sort of executive action because I think he did have that side to him. However, his philosophy was a sort of market-oriented. But I think it's perfectly clear from what he said behind the scenes and all the rest of it that the Irish famine had nothing to do with his decision to repeal the Corn Laws. He was quite clear that repeal was not going to get food into the mouths of the Irish. He was worried, in fact, that if any part of the country was going to suffer from corn law repeal, and he says this explicitly, it will be Ireland, because Irish tenants depend on high food prices to pay their rent. Again, he says in 1846, we're going to do corn law repeal. It's got to be done sometime. Why not do it now in a boom? when everybody's comfortable, uh, rather than do it when things might be miserable. Well, obviously, he's not thinking in an Irish context, though. He's thinking in an English context. And in the end, it is an Irish question that precipitates his fall. So it's the Irish Coercion Bill. Just take us briefly through that. So he didn't fall because his party deserted him because he had repealed the Corn Laws. They manifested their desertion of him on this question of the Irish Coercion Bill. Oh, but he fell because he had repealed the Corn Laws and destroyed his party. I mean, the problem was that his party in the Commons couldn't stop him repealing the Corn Laws once he and his Peelites had decided to do it because all the Whigs and Liberals are going to vote for it. The problem is the Lords. And in fact, that's where Wellington comes in and uses his personal influence in the Lords not to create a crisis and to let the repeal through. But in the Commons, it's going to sail through. It's a bit like Catholic emancipation in 1829. Once the government decides to do it, there's no difficulty about it going through. Peel's speeches all have to be about self-defence, why I'm doing it, why I am appearing to be a traitor. The Cornwall repeal goes through, but his party take the first opportunity to bring him down on an issue where they agree with him. They all agree with coercion in Ireland and so on. (laughs) So it's very clearly personal. No, I agree, but there's an irony to that because it's the Irish question that's going to then reassert itself as the problem for what will become the Liberal Party. And Gladstone, who has played his own part, you know, who's a loyal Peelite in 1846, is going to be also, you know, have his political career not ended, but get into, you know, grave complications because of the Irish question. When people talk about the Conservative Party, the modern Conservative Party that was born with Peel and having this extraordinary history, it's often described as the most successful election winning machine in in the modern world and this notion that there is continuity over time it is still recognizably the same party it does have its roots in this moment is that true I am mean, i allowed to say bollocks you're allowed to say bollocks i don't think we even have to put a little explicit warning so if that is bollocks actually that's the slogan of one of the parties yes it? It, so it, it, of course it, you're allowed to say it. Um, where is the break this is a, a, tw- a very 20th century line. It's not a 19th century line. Peel was basically loathed 
about Salisbury Balfour, he's the guy that is a traitor, a twice traitor. And he's given grudging support from certain liberal elements who say, well, he wasn't one of us and he held up progress, but he did do his job twice by accepting the need for important reform before it was too late, as it were. So he was a useful stabilising force. So we, we, we pat him on the head, but he's, nobody's a peelite in that period. Basically what happens, as I see it, all the Peelite policies, the economic policies, the social philosophy, the justice to violence, that all goes into the, with Gladstone into the Gladstonian Liberal Party. Now, of course, the Liberal Party is dominant until the First World War, but collapses very suddenly, and aspects of liberalism go into the Conservative Party. Other aspects go into Labour. The aspect that goes into the Conservative Party is the market economics aspect. So suddenly, by 1825, people are starting to say, hey, here's the, here's the modern Conservative Party. It's very Peelite. Sorry, 1925. You said, 1925. You said 1825. Sorry, 1925. It's very Peelite. Halevi, the great French historian, is the first person to see Peel, essentially, is a key figure. And then you get the historiography of the mid 20th century, sort of Blake, Gash, very, 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 very dominant and popular and so forth. Peel is really the founder of the Conservative Party, although there was a long detour. But I don't see it that way at all. Yeah, I think you've got to say that the Conservative Party either owes itself to Disraeli or owes itself to Salisbury, one of those two, because there's a way of telling the story because of the 1834 Tamworth Manifesto that seems to set out the principles of conservatism in the post-1832 age. But, you know, like right from the beginning, you've got people in the party who say this has got nothing to do with conservatism. I mean, Disraeli's question there is, is what on earth is being conserved in this position? So it's not conservative in the literal meaning of, of that sense. And there's far too many people in the party, as Boyd said, who just don't agree with it. I think it's it's interesting the point when people in the Conservative Party themselves start trying to claim Peel as their hero. There's a bit I've, uh, I was reading earlier in the week where um, Douglas Hurd, who, who wrote a biography of Peel, I think, I'm right in saying, is trying to say, look, Peel is who we owe it all to. But I think it's pretty difficult to see that unless, as you say, that you start saying that economic liberalism is a central part of what the Conservative Party is. And then then you're going to struggle with the fact that it was the Conservative Party who turned away from this in terms of free trade. I mean, they tried to do it, and Baldwin tried to do it in 1923 and lost seats in the general election uh, as a consequence of doing it. And then those national governments in the 1930s that were dominated by the Conservatives are the ones who then construct an imperial trade bloc and do finally turn Britain away from free trade. You'd be hard pushed to describe the Conservatives under Eden and Macmillan in the, and even Hume in the 60s as being very economically liberal. Maybe you can start bringing it back in with Edward Heath, but then it's not a coincidence perhaps that Heath runs into the complete tension between the claims that he makes as an economic moderniser, if you like, and does want to talk about free market principles, and the problem of how you reconcile his desire to join the European Union with other traditions in the Conservative Party, which me, I think, is part of the reason why he, in some sense, does something that's not quite a reverse pill, but I mean, he can only take and into the European community and get the European Community Act through with Labour votes because although he's got two-thirds of his party and Peel only had one-third of his party, he still can't take the party together through that. And we're still living with the consequences of that now, obviously. Because when you describe it like that, what it feels like is the continuity is not that there is this party which has a, an origin story and a trajectory over time, but that the thing that existed before the repeal of the Corn Laws, which was a broadly speaking two-party system, which we still live in, the way our politics is set up, is to create these two blocks. 
And these blocks are incredibly complicated and they have all these different strands running through them that rise and fall and come and go and you think they've been killed and they come back 100 years later in a different form. And we are still living with that. I mean, when I read your book, I had that feeling that I'm sure lots of people do reading these sort of great history books that weave social and political history together. The political history is so familiar and the social history is so alien. It's such a different world and yet you see these moments in politics, two-party politics, the dance around who's going to be holding the poison chalice just struck home and yet against a backdrop where, where it's a time of famine. I mean, it's just... and. There is that weirdness to British politics that we do have that continuity simply because the way that Westminster politics creates these odd, unstable coalitions and these conventions around how those hold together. And you do recognise that now. I do feel it's not anachronistic to see those echoes. Well, I think in part it's because these you know, huge questions, whether they be economic or political or indeed, I would say, constitutional as well, don't actually get resolved. You Ever? Just, yeah, they, they just kept being held in place and as you say like one faction often within the parties themselves rises and falls in relation to them but that it's the problem of if you like governing the United Kingdom and the problem of the United Kingdom's position in the world and not least in relation to Europe is actually just too complicated to resolve and so our politics kind of moves around the same kind of questions in very very different circumstances over and over again. I quite agree, though as an historian perhaps I'm also looking more for the particular than for the generality. I would want to focus, I think, on what happens in the late 1870s because in the 50s, 60s and for most of the 70s virtually everybody is a free trader. If you're not a free trader, you shut up. But of course the great challenge to the policy in Europe generally, because other European countries have been moving in that direction, so had America, but in the late 70s very cheap American wheat floods into Europe and every country in Europe puts up tariffs to protect its barriers except Britain and the Netherlands. And it's a conscious choice that we will concentrate on the City of London services, cottons and a few other industries, coal exports and so forth, mainly invisibles, and we will take the cheap food. And of course, it's, it's the moment when we leave what will become the common market. It's our declaratory moment where we are different from Europe, it seems to me. But of course, it leads to a fair trade movement. Fair trade in, the, in that period didn't mean what it means now. It means a sort of reciprocal putting up of tariffs against those who put tariffs against us. And it's led, of course, not by the Conservatives, led by a radical liberal called Chamberlain and so forth. Very much sort of Birmingham thing. Now, it's after Chamberlain has join the Conservatives for entirely different reasons, that it then becomes a rebel Conservative policy in 1903, and it does completely split the party. And as Helen says, then it's, it's an ongoing battle within the Conservative Party between free trade. Um, the other thing just to say about all that, on the question of continuity of the Conservative Party, many people would say the Conservative Party from 1886 onwards is a unionist party. It's reinvented as a, as a party of the union in response to the shock of Gladstone's declaration for home rule for Ireland and so forth. And you know, there are tripos questions, examination questions, more a unionist than a Conservative Party discuss. And for at least 30 years, the union is what holds the Conservative Party together. I noticed that Boris Johnson has been going out of his way to thank people for supporting him Thank his fellow members of Parliament supporting him in his bid to become leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party, and it's a trope in contemporary politics. I, am, I said I'm going to ask one last question, just to go back to Boyd, what you said about if the Conservative Party had behaved itself and just gone away when it should have done, then British politics would have gone down a different path. 
So again, you may not want to answer this as a historian, but that was therefore an existential moment for the Conservative Party. It could have ceased to exist. Mm -hmm. And people say this is another, that, that that's where the link is across time, that these are the two moments. And it's hard to find other moments in the story where it simply could go out of business. Do you think it could go out of business now? Well, I certainly hope so. <laughs> I don't know, David. Uh, <laughs> they do have a I'm trying. They do, they do have a habit of hanging on, don't they? And let's be serious, if I may be serious. There is always a binary, as you say. I mean, we're never going to get consensus politics. Politics will revolve. So if the Conservatives go out of business, what is the binary? What's left? Who fills that space, yeah. There was quite a lot in that. Um, we realised that there might be some people who want a bit more background information than usual. In our show notes, we'll have a timeline um, and some background reading as well if you want to follow up on any of this. Next week, we are going to get back to contemporary politics. Gary Gerstle will be here. We'll be talking about what's going on in the United States. And a big thank you to all the teachers who filled in our survey. You can find out more at tppodcast underscore. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. So how do you um, how do you do something as radical as this without an election to validate it? Which obviously is the, and then we'll see where we go. Is that okay? We'll have to, I'll see if it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, <don't laughs> I like I like your refusal to be reassured. Oh, and the other thing is, you are our most ironed guest. So your shirt's quite muscly, so it's perfect what you're doing now. Which is I'm not taking my shirt off. Right? No, you need to take your shirt off. <laughs> 